It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you discussing economics and foreign affairs. Busy week this week. A standby military force to be deployed in Niger by ECOWAS. That's the West African bloc of nations. As the military junta that seized power in Niger rejects all diplomatic calls to restore President Mohamed Bazoum to power. An anti-corruption presidential candidate gunned down in Ecuador. The current president says organized crime is to blame. Former Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan has been sentenced to three years in jail and has been barred from holding public office for five years. But we start with the latest inflation and consumer news here in the United States. Sam Park, the University of Michigan, go Wolverines, issued the consumer sentiment numbers uh, today. You were uh, hip to this, the preliminary August numbers. And you'll forgive me if I'm less than thrilled. It's apparently unchanged from July. Pretty much, yes. So what is consumer sentiment? Does this mean I am as willing to purchase those pair of socks this month as I was last month? Or are socks a bad bad example? Uh, So, Well, essentially, yes. I mean, we've talked in our discussions about inflation, about how important consumer expectations of inflation are, right? And that if those expectations become entrenched in the minds of consumers, it just feeds additional inflation. Uh, And so I guess no news is good news, right? People haven't suddenly become more fearful. In in fact, the, the sentiment report said that people's expectations of inflation specifically have eased a tiny bit, uh, whereas overall consumer sentiment ha- has soured a tiny bit. A tiny bit, like yeah. what four tenths of a percent? Yeah, I mean, statistically, it seems you know well within the margin of error. It's uh, essentially things seem unchanged, which I guess is okay. Uh, the big, the big statistical uh, gap that I noticed was the consumer sentiment from this August compared to August of 2022 is 22% higher or better. Consumers yes. feel 22% better this August compared to last August. And and that's good, right? I mean, uh, but it seems as though, uh, and we shouldn't be surprised about this, right? Uh, uh, the Fed has been trying, the Federal Reserve has been trying to fight inflation for more than a year. It seems like they're doing a pretty good job. And, uh, but it's a lagging indicator. Prices are, you know, again, falling inflation still means rising prices. And people aren't, uh, you know, th- I think that as we discussed in the, the our, our discussion of the banking problems earlier this year, there's a whole generation of financial professionals that have never had to operate inside of a rising interest rate environment and just simply don't know how to do it. I think there's also a whole generation of uh, financial journalists who've never had to live inside of a, uh, an environment of high inflation and don't really understand how much people hate inflation and are sort of scratching their heads as to why consumer sentiment isn't you know, rebounding along with the other positive news about the economy. And I don't think this should be quite as big a mystery as it seems to be to people. For instance, I kind of wish that at the beginning of this year, there had been a consumer sentiment survey taken just among economic forecasters, right? And say, how do you feel about 
your personal economic situation? And they would almost all say, pretty good. I have a good job. It's work I find interesting. It pays well. People put me on TV and I get to say things uh, about the economy. And the best part is, even if I'm wrong, people will still put me on TV next month to talk about what I think. So in the so-called marketplace of ideas, I can be a purveyor of faulty merchandise and suffer no penalty, which, by the way, is how consumer markets generally work. Uh, you know, the, uh, financial prognosticators are not the only people who have this advantage. But then if you were to ask these people, OK, so you feel good about your own personal economic situation. How do you feel about the general state of the economy? And many of them would have said, oh, we're going to have a recession. Right. And, so, and you know, may, and by the way, they might still be right. For instance, Moody's is still predicting a recession, a mild recession early next year. Uh, and now that's not just because they're called Moody's, uh, but well played. Thank you. Uh, but. It's you know, we we're still not quite out of the woods and consumers don't think we are either. Right. Uh, they're as you say, they're generally feeling much more positive about things now. But that is because inflation has fallen a great deal and it doesn't seem to be running away, which was the great fear, I think, last year. All right. So the University of Michigan tells us that consumers are about the same as they were last month, but 22 percent in better sentiments than they were last year. Speaking of consumers, uh, it is, of course, the consumer price index uh, that gives us our inflation data. And that came out earlier this week. Uh Inflation for July 2023 up 3.2% over July 2022. Core inflation, which we now know, uh, sing along if you know the words, that's inflation without volatile food and energy prices. That's down a tenth of a percent compared to July of last year, 4.8 to 4.7%. Core inflation uh, in July 2023 essentially unchanged from June 2023 it fell very slightly uh meanwhile headline inflation that is without uh that is with food and energy prices factored in actually rose very slightly from june to july right but many are saying that's kind of um uh fool's gold it's not telling it's not telling the bigger picture but it is like a sexy headline it is. And and I think one of the things that's happened this year and I made an editorial decision. It's not fake news. No, I get it. Uh, uh, is that actually uh, core inflation kind of has been falling faster than headline inflation. And economists would say that's good news. And right? headline inflation is really ticked up because of gas prices in the U.S. And housing prices. Right. Uh, and. At the same time, though. People notice housing and fuel yes. prices. Yeah. You know, I mean, economists like to talk about price signals and gas prices have some of the strongest price signals in the entire consumer marketplace just because you see them on the street every day in large numbers. I can't and think of a more accurate reading of populist economic sentiment than yeah. fuel exactly. prices. Gas, gasoline prices right. are just always you know, one of the strongest price signals you can find. And so uh, I think this helps explain why consumer sentiment isn't really changing very much. Uh, you know, it has risen a lot uh, year over year, but, at you know, on a day-to-day basis, 
it, people are like, well, I'm still paying a lot for gas. I'm still paying a lot for housing. And I think this figures in, obviously, as we might expect, with uh, the consumer sentiment numbers, where if, especially housing, and I think there's another, there's a few, couple other factors that, that work in here. I'm glad uh, you brought up housing. I don't want to interrupt you. But one thing that was mentioned in coverage of the core inflation uh, dipping down a tenth of a percent was that rent prices have been moderating compared to a year ago, right? Yes. And you uh, recommended to me an outstanding podcast in which an, uh, an economist was talking about how rents are a lagging indicator because most people have one-year rents. Right, That exactly. So right. rents so- spiked nationally last year. And now they're moderating, and now we're starting to see that in core inflation. Yeah, because the, your rent can't spike twice in a year, right? I mean, so, uh, and that's helpful, obviously. That's why we sign one-year leases, right? So we know what our rent's going to be for the entire year. Uh, but I think, and I don't mean to, to fault uh, uh, economists or data gatherers on this, because they're you don't want to change the parameters of your analysis willy-nilly uh, without having really uh, well-substantiated reasons for doing so. But, uh, for instance, for uh, one economic factor that's more important in the United States than it is in other advanced economies is healthcare. right? We know that healthcare is somewhere between a sixth and a fifth, uh, or that is equivalent to uh, somewhere between a sixth and a fifth of uh, gross domestic product, higher than in other advanced economies, considerably. Uh, and it's been an enormous economic issue in this country for a generation, right? All the way back to... Tell me about it. Yeah, all the way back to Obama and, you know, Bernie Sanders was able to mount two different presidential campaigns over the course of five years, making health care and health, especially the cost of health care, one of his signature issues and, and make a great deal of headway on that issue. And of course, the healthcare system was highly impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic and hasn't fully bounced back by any stretch of the imagination. And so uh, as that is to say, people are used to thinking of healthcare as an important economic issue in their own lives and in the lives of the, in the life of the nation more broadly. And health, uh, that is unexpected medical expenses, I'm not sure if they're still the top most common reason for people declaring bankruptcy, but they're all, it's always up there, right? Personal bankruptcy is, is uh, associated with unexpected medical costs very frequently. And that's just atrocious, right? So as people think about the economy, this is always something that's going to, I mean, everybody knows somebody who's had a terrible health problem that's really almost wiped them out financially. It happens all the time. And so uh, I don't think that that people are factored, that is the, the economists and analysts are factoring this in quite as uh, robustly as they might need to. They should, you know, they're probably aware of this and they're trying to come up with a way of doing that. But I don't think it's an easy uh, methodological thing to accomplish. And the other thing is, I know that you and I have discussed this offline, is the homeless problem. For instance, we talk about housing costs, right? Uh, But we don't talk about the effect of high housing costs, which is homelessness, which is a 
huge problem in a way it's never been before in our society all across the nation. And it's a problem in places that it hasn't been a problem before. And I think that people, if they see, if they know their own housing costs are high and they see lots of people living on the street, it's difficult for them to think of America as being uh, a thriving society. A and, prosperous place, right? Yeah, how, you know, and that, I think that's completely reasonable. And I think that might help ex- uh, uh, explain the lag in between the the generally good economic data and people's perception of the overall health of the economy. But again, analysts aren't used to thinking about homelessness. They do talk about housing costs, right? But they don't talk about the effect of the, those costs on the perception. In other words, right. people- There's no beleaguered metric that measures how demoralizing it is to, to witness runaway homelessness and then think about your own rising housing costs and the dire consequences. Yeah, but I mean, it's not that difficult for people to put two and two together that way. Right. And again, I think- pe- But we don't know, have a data point is my- is No, but they might want to try and come up with one as these problems fester, right? Because the, I don't think that housing costs are going to be coming down anytime soon, right? Uh, and, you know, apart from that, I can't see any- uh, real substantive solution to the how to the homeless problem anytime soon either. So they they might have to come up with some way of of factoring this in if if possible, right? And economics is not uh, it's not necessarily well designed as a discipline to think about things like this. There needs to be perhaps some kind of broader analysis that gets worked in somehow. Also, with regard to core inflation, used cars were less expensive in July. That had been a contentious market. Yes, and uh, I think that's been happening for a while. Prices have been coming down for a little while, and that's good. You know, that it helps. It's probably partly because uh, you know supply supply chain issues in the new car market have smoothed out considerably over the last year. So as new car prices. Have, you know, or the availability of new cars that is have has uh, generally become a more positive story. Uh, people aren't uh, trying to buy used cars as frequently as they were a year ago. The Fed next meets on the twentieth of September. Yeah, that's a little while out, right? So uh, they they'll have a good amount of da- of data to chew on and try and figure out what they're going to do. I wouldn't hazard a guess at this point, frankly. Uh, And I don't, uh, there's, I think we can join the rest of the economic analysis community and not sort of being on the edge of our seat about this, you know, in the way that we were perhaps earlier this year. Turning to Ecuador, political violence in the presidential election that's coming up on the 20th of this month, centrist presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio was gunned down in Quito after a political rally on Wednesday. Six suspects arrested in connection with the killing. Uh, one suspect was killed. The six in uh, custody are reportedly all Colombian. Uh, Villavicencio had worked as a journalist, an activist, and a legislator. He was uh, polling near the middle of the pack, eight candidates running for president again the election august 20th um via vicencio had been the most outspoken of the group 
regarding the link between organized crime and the government. He was an anti-corruption candidate. He had received death threats. The current president of Ecuador, Guillermo Lasso, declared a state of emergency after the assassination. He has suspended some civil liberties, he said, to help deal with growing crime. Lasso blamed the killing on organized crime and the National Prosecutor's Office in Ecuador uh, reported one suspect had been killed. They'd arrested six others. And President Lasso has now requested the help of the FBI to assist in the investigation. Yeah, it's a terrible story. Um, from what I gather, Ecuador, until rather recently, had been a pretty safe country by Latin American standards. Especially when contrasted with their neighbor, Colombia. Yes, and or Peru. And I think that's part of the uh, problem here is that Colombia and Peru are the two largest cocaine producers in the world. And uh, Colombia in particular had come up with a sort of peace plan between the government and numerous different militant groups that had been at war with the government for half a century. Uh, and that that's great for Colombia, right? Uh, but the problem is, it sort of freed up their national security resources to deal with organized crime, which in some cases overlapped quite a lot with some of these militant groups who were trafficking drugs in order to feed their revolutionary activities. But uh, the more they crack down on non-militant organized crime, uh, these criminals needed to have find a place to go. And uh, Ecuador, in part, was one of those places. And so crime rose dramatically in Ecuador. Their prison system wasn't built to deal with it, frankly. They, uh, and so they started arresting all these people. But basically, that amounted to a gang takeover of the prison system. There have been prison riots inside of Ecuador for a few years now just because they're filled with violent criminals. Uh, and to me, uh, it's a terrible story in the particulars, but it's just another catastrophic outcome of the United States war on drugs, which has been a colossal failure uh, for, again, half a century. And uh, to paraphrase one of the most militant drug warriors in American history, Ronald Reagan, uh, we declared war on drugs and drugs won. And uh, there's no reversing this, unfortunately. Sam, I help me here. Help me here. I understand the point you're trying to make. Connect the dots between a political killing in Ecuador and the United States not wanting its people to consume cocaine. Right. Right. Uh, now there's, I have an autobiographical element here. My f late father was a sociologist and his, speci his speciality was uh, drug policy and, and drugs in society more broadly. Uh, and I remember my father telling me in the seventies, right. Uh, that drug addiction should be addressed as a public health problem, not, not a criminal a matter. law enforcement right. problem. And I'm going, okay, great. Can I go outside and you know play with my friends now? I mean, I'm a little, I'm a little kid when he's telling right. me that. Right. The point is that there was already an emerging academic consensus about this, which policymakers in this country, on a bipartisan level, by, ignored. by the way, yeah. ignored. Right. And they decided to deal with it only as a law enforcement matter. But by criminalizing drugs, they empowered what people who ended up becoming and were not then, but became 
some of the most vicious, violent criminals on earth. So your 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 assertion is, and I just want to make sure we're clear about this: without the United States' war on drug and the overt criminalization of drug use, you don't have the black market being as powerful as it is, and you don't have the underworld uh, networks as powerful as they are. That's right. There could have been a regulated market, legal market for the product. But because we've had a black market of this massive scale for 50 plus years, you've got prison riots in Ecuador and now an assassination of a presidential candidate. That's right. Uh, Now, mind you, we don't know what kind of other outcomes would have uh, resulted from the kind of policy alternatives that were never employed. Right. And I want to make that very clear. Right. There could have been other very bad effects from such a policy pursuit. Uh, but we know what did happen because of the policy we did pursue. That's and it's not only- good. No, it isn't good. Uh, and there's again, there's if we suddenly legalize cocaine in this country, that wouldn't solve this problem. OK, I want to I want to make that very clear, too. We would essentially be legalizing and rewarding subsidizing some of the worst criminals in the entire world. Uh, and so I'm not advocating that at all. Uh, I'm just saying that this is just another policy decision, sort of like our climate policy, where we made it enormous mistakes and there's no turning back from them. Right. We cannot reverse these policies uh, in an adequate measure. That's all. The election is uh, August 20th. It will go on in Ecuador. It has not been postponed. We'll uh, we'll cover that election in an upcoming episode. Yes, hopefully, you know, uh, there won't be any other horrible incidents associated with it. To the coup in Niger, which is now two weeks old. The ECOWAS block, West African nation, said yesterday, Thursday, it had directed a standby force, which is a military force, to restore constitutional order in Niger. The junta that toppled President Mohamed Bazoum ignored the ultimatum issued by ECOWAS to reinstate President Bazoum. That was last Sunday. So now... This block of West African nations is putting together a military force and putting it on standby. Sam, this is escalating. Yes. Uh, it's kind of it's I would say it's escalating on a net basis. Right. It's sort of, you know, it's going up and down. But, uh, uh, you know, in the aggregate, it's escalating. For instance, as we recall, ECOWAS threatened the possibility of, uh, of military action almost instantly. Right. Within a couple of days of the coup. And I think a lot of people, probably including both of us. Right. were like, OK, maybe you don't want to open with that. Right. Uh, because, you know, they originally gave a week deadline, which ended last Sunday. Right. Uh, that deadline passed. They didn't do anything. Uh, and so they kind of boxed themselves in and then seemed to have to climb down this past Sunday. Uh, meanwhile, the junta leaders are refusing to meet with anybody uh, that's not on their side. They've met with people from 
uh, Mali and Burkina Faso, who have openly said that they're on the side of, of the of the junta. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, Victoria Newland, the second highest ranking diplomat in this country, uh, went to Niger on Monday was not allowed to meet with any of the coup leaders, was not allowed to see deposed President uh, Mohamed Bazoum, uh, basically failed to achieve anything. Uh, and other uh, ECOWAS delegations have been tr- trying to, to meet with them this week. They have also been rebuffed. Uh, and I don't really understand what the coup leaders think they're they're doing here. Right? They seem to be willfully isolating themselves from the entire international community. And I can't see that that's helping them in any way. Uh, People are starting to uh, be kind of upset that there's no electricity or there's very little electricity. Just to be clear, Niger needs the international community. You would think. 40% of their budget, according to the deposed president, is foreign aid. Yeah, that's right. And their economy is is mostly mostly agrarian. We talk about, you know, their large uranium deposits, but that's not how most people get by in Niger. Yeah. Rank and file people I've never seen pay their rent in uranium. Right. And and when we say agrarian, it's not like in the Central Valley here where you've got giant agribusiness operating these factory farms. Agrarian in that part of the world means, you know, just subsistence single family farm plots some goats yeah uh and so uh again i don't quite understand what the coup leaders think they're doing and the problem is they may not understand it either uh and that's alarming right uh is that if you're trying to negotiate with people who don't really grasp what's going on your negotiations might very well fail uh, and that seems to be exactly what's happening. There was a report in the Associated Press that the uh, junta in Niger, now in charge of the country, had told a top U.S. diplomat they would kill President Bazoum if neighboring countries attempted any military intervention. That's right. Nobody's gone on the record with that. <clears throat> but that there, there, it's there, there, a number of sources have, have, have said that. So I think that's probably legit. Uh, meanwhile, uh I think Bazoum is still in the presidential palace under, you know, guard, right? But there's, you know, they have very little electricity. They have very little water. They have very little food. Uh, So he's being held in rather dire conditions. But is this how you're negotiating with the international community? It's just like, you better not do anything or we'll kill the guy? I mean, that's, you know, uh, again... You would think that they would understand that they need the international community, but they don't seem to understand that. I mean, one has to think if you are naive enough to attempt a coup, maybe you're naive enough to not think you need to negotiate. But then again, if you're sophisticated enough to execute a coup, you might think you're sophisticated enough to understand you need the international community. It is perplexing and as you said it it's escalating and it it doesn't look like it's getting better anytime soon it keeps getting more dire for the deposed president for the possibility of military intervention you know one thing that you and i have both noticed in the coverage of uh the coup in niger is 
how the United States is not exactly well positioned, having poured a lot of money and manpower into the country, but not exactly in a position where they can lead the charge to intervene. No, they can't. What they've generally said. We can't. uh, Secretary of State Blinken said that that the United States supports ECOWAS, right? So they're sort of, uh, you know, giving them the ball, which I think is wise, right? That African nations need to be seen to be trying to solve their own regional problems. And I will point out the coverage of uh, ECOWAS. It's West African leaders, right? There there aren't Europeans in there. There also aren't a lot of women in there, but they are West African men. That's right. And, uh, you know, we'll have to hope that they can come up with some sort of solution. Sam, do you think the United States would be taking a more muscular position on what's going on in Niger if the invasion of Ukraine were not taking place? Our military is pretty focused on that, and our military output right now is pretty focused on that. I kind of don't think so, actually. Right. I I think that that this particular administration in general would would see the wisdom of trying to let uh, African nations take care of this on their own. Uh, I'm you know, we we can't really pose a a good counterfactual on this. Uh, But to your previous point, the coup was a very easy thing to do. And I don't don't think the leaders would have had to been uh, especially sophisticated. Right. Right. Because it, it was mounted by people in the presidential guard. Right. They were already in the palace. All they had to do was start pointing their guns at the president and say, OK, you're done. Right. right. You I mean, you didn't have to be too sophisticated. You just had to know when to lock the door. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, it, it was probably over very quickly. Uh, and we should be thankful that so far it's been a bloodless coup, essentially. Let's pivot to our two kicker stories. We'll start with Imran Khan. Sentenced to jail for three years, the former Pakistani Prime Minister, who has been prosecuted uh, on corruption charges by his political opposition. And he's also been barred for holding public office for five years. Uh, I was speaking to a friend of mine whose family uh, is from Pakistan. He still has family there. His parents immigrated from Pakistan. He said if there were an election today, Imran Khan would win in a landslide. And we have discussed this in previous episodes, but Khan's uh, relations with the military, which is extremely powerful in Pakistan, are fraught. And that is kind of the root of this um, prosecution of Khan, who is certainly not the first potentially corrupt politician in the history of Pakistan, but certainly the most famous potentially corrupt politician in Pakistan. Sure. Uh, Just because he's the most famous politician ever in Pakistan, right? And, and he might be the most famous Pakistani ever. Yeah, I think he probably is. Uh, and one thing I'd say about this is that 20 years ago, for example, uh, General Pervez Musharraf just staged an out-and-out military coup, not unlike the one that we've see- seen in Niger, and he just ousted the civilian elected government and said he was in charge. Uh, the military in Pakistan seems to have gotten a little bit more sophisticated. Right. They didn't do that this time. They just engineered a no confidence vote to oust Imran Khan from the government uh, last year, I guess that was. And so uh, this at least gives the veneer of democratic legitimacy to this coup. Right. But I would uh, 
uh, say to our American listeners, this is what weaponization of the government against a political party looks Thank like. Thank you for bringing right. this up. All right. That's, you know, it's because it's not just Imran Khan. The entire leadership of his party is in jail, right? Thousands of members of the party are in jail, all right? Meanwhile, Kevin McCarthy, Ronna McDaniel, Mitch McConnell, they're all walking around free, all right? They're, nothing's being weaponized against them, all right? It's absurd, okay? That can happen in countries. And Pakistan is is a country where that is happening. Uh, and uh, it seems that they'll probably be successful. Now, Khan is appealing his verdict. Uh, and we'll have to see how that goes. But I think this is probably a done deal, right? Uh, he might come back, right? Uh, he, it wouldn't be out of the question for him to serve his time and then come back and become prime minister again. I think that's po- very possible. He is wildly popular. Yeah. We'll see. The Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization, ACTO. I love a good treaty acronym. acronym? Yeah, that's great. ACTO. I like ACTO, too. That's a good yeah. name. Eight uh, Amazon Basin nations had a summit. Uh, among them, Brazil, where 60% of the uh, Amazonian rainforest is. And they agreed to a goal that they want to preserve the rainforest to, quote, avoid the point of no return. But they didn't actually get to a joint nation joint treaty organization goal on deforestation. Brazil has their own, and Lula, the president of Brazil, has been um, spearheading reversal of uh, deforestation in that country. In fact, it's at, a six, it's at a six-year low. Yeah, But that's like inflation. That still means rainforest is getting cut down. It's just at a slower rate. Yes. Um, but it was alarmingly fast under his predecessor, sure. Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro. So can we be, should we be cynical or optimistic about this, Sam? I mean, we have to try to be optimistic just because this is the most important thing that's happening in the world right now. By the way, uh, John, as you know uh, from your many guest appearances here in my apartment, I have an, uh, a map of the world on my wall. And it's when, true, folks. And when things happen in other parts of the world that, that I'm not quite sure where they are, I will always take a look. And But one thing I just noticed about the Sahel uh, is that it's entirely between the equator and the Tropic of Cancer. And by the way, at that latitude, it's the largest contiguous landmass on Earth. And so I'm not saying that all this stuff in the Sahel is because of climate change, I'm, but I am saying that it's a problem there, right? And it's not making things any better. Another thing that happened this week was dozens of people drowned in the Mediterranean trying to reach Europe. Climate change isn't making that any better. Niger is a important transit country for uh, for migration to Europe. I'm imagining it's probably also an important source country. Uh, but the point is that uh, if we're not going to do anything about climate change, all these other issues aren't going to get any better. I don't even want to talk about Hawaii, which is just one of the most horrific Ghastly. things I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, even on our show, we're probably going to want to start talking about this even more than we have, because we actually haven't direct, uh, addressed it very directly. We have, to our credit, let not to pat ourselves on the back too much, uh, 
mentioned how it figures into all these other issues, which is very important. So I think that's something we can look forward to talking about in future episodes. Yeah, there's not a crisis in the world or a future crisis or future problem that is not compounded by this. That's right. For next week, I would say uh, we should probably go back and talk about China again, especially its relations with the United States, but also things that are just happening inside of the Chinese economy, which is very deflation right now. Yeah, they've got deflation. So that, you know, uh, you know, our discussions of inflation are always so riveting that, you know, we, put, we <laughs> owe it to ourselves, not to mention our listeners to, you know, work this into what we talk about. All right. Questions, comments, suggestions, send them on down. John Media at gmail.com. For Sam Park, I'm John Ramey. Have yourselves a great weekend. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.